Alright. I want to read a poem to get us in the mindset. Let's see. This is by Morris Manning uh, called On the Limits of Natural Law. I draw in breath. My legs move. My head turns. My eyes narrow. My hand takes hold of a buckeye branch and strips it of its leaves. The world is all around me. The world reaches to me like a wife. I put my weight against it. My bones belong to it. My heart is full of ether, the air beyond the sky. It cannot be touched. I can, cannot lay it in the dirt. This conflict is older than all the rivers. How many miles are all the rivers put together? My legs will never know. But my heart does. And it is not a distance. It is similar with birds. The reason that they fly has nothing to do with wings. I'd like to claim, uh, as I normally do, uh, Jesus' pronouncement in Acts 1.8 that we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we shall be witnesses from here to the ends of the earth. And that is true even in this moment on this Sunday. So, how does one defend the faith? How does one respond cogently to legitimate criticisms of the Judeo-Christian worldview? We are commanded to defend our belief. In 1 Peter 3 it reads, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I encourage you to read from verse 8 in that chapter in 1 Peter 3 to the end of the chapter to get the full breadth of what Peter is saying here. But for our purposes this morning, this, these verses 15 and 16 are an exhortation to be diligent in defending the faith when asked about it. In many ways, that faith is not hard to defend. The faith even defends itself. A great example of this kind of defense is summarized powerfully by C.S. Lewis, of course, who wrote this about someone saying, I am willing to accept Jesus was a good man and a great moral teacher, but that's all. He was not God. Lewis wrote, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic, on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Though at times a controversial argument in some ways, this one is a rather simple and straightforward one. But this is not always the case for defending the faith. 
Though there are things that are easier to defend, whether they are accepted or not, is another conversation. There are also things that can be placed in more difficult categories. And in our case, as we have started through the series on the book of Revelation, a difficult thing to defend or explain as otherworldly activities. We call them dreams, visions, or prophecies. Heaven. We are to defend a realm that we do not see. As theologian Michael Heiser titled in his book, The Unseen Realm. Let's be honest, it's hard to defend a place which we do not see. This is not unusual for religious worldviews, of course, which Christianity is clearly a part. Most religious views of the world also have unseen aspects and realities they need to defend. To defend unseen things is difficult, or is it? Tell me, defend love. What is love? Or joy? Defend the bond between a parent and their newborn child, even though all the child has done to that point is bring discomfort and pain to the mother. Just because authorities in our culture may delineate between religious and non-religious doesn't mean religion, religionless views need not defend unseen things. We all defend unseen realms and ideas because I believe we are all fundamentally religious. We all have our own rituals, doctrines, liturgies, vestments, catechisms for our ideas, religious or not. The religious and the non-religious alike defend invisible things. They need to. You can't go around trying to describe stuff and defend realities that are unseen, and trying to describe and defend those things can be tricky, but not impossible. Which brings us to the series, our series in this book of the Bible, Revelation. There is a lot in this book that occurs in the unseen realm, that occurs via the vision or trance of one of the apostles of Jesus, John. So technically, these are not unseen events, merely events seen by one and communicated to many down through the ages to us now here 2,000 years later. Let me quickly suggest several things for you to think about or do as we go through this series trying to glean insights into things done in the unseen realm. First, learn to live with mystery. If I go into parts of Revelation with the idea that I need to find out exactly what a particular scene or item or word means, then I might end up being more disappointed than I should be. God can reveal meaning immediately. But most of the time, he unfolds his purposes over time. And sometimes, not at all. Second, learn visual and conceptual language. I had a friend in, uh, when I lived in New York that once told me visual art has an alphabet. Lines, color, textures, content, form, etc. They all communicate ideas and concepts. We just need to get better at reading that alphabet. I think getting better at reading visual and conceptual alphabets would help in reading Revelation and even accepting its mysteries. So I suggest reading more poetry, conceptual languages, and looking at more visual art, visual languages, especially the stuff you don't understand. You might find you understand it a little bit more as you read poetry or look at more art, or you might understand Revelation a little bit more, or learn to accept the fact that you don't understand it, but still can appreciate it. Third, remember what is and isn't essential. It is essential to Christianity that Jesus lived the perfect life, died the atoning death, and rose again to defeat death forever. 
It is essential that God is the creator of all things. It is essential that Jesus is coming back again to judge the living and the dead. If you look at some of the ancient creeds in church history, you will get a good idea of what is essential to believe to follow Jesus of Nazareth. As far as what I'm aware of, none of those creeds have a particular eschatology beyond Jesus returning as essential for being a Christian. That doesn't mean we can't have fun trying to figure out things and baiting each other in particulars regarding Revelation. Trying to answer questions about where the United States of America is in Revelation or the eschaton, or trying to answer what form the number 666 will appear on humanity is fun to debate, but we must remember that 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 the phrase, a thousand years, has instigated a lot of end times theology debate and sadly division for only appearing in one chapter of the book of Revelation in the course of six verses. The phrase appears six times in six verses in chapter 20. I have to ask myself, if those six verses didn't appear in that chapter, would we all have the debate about eschatology? Perhaps God has them in there to keep us humble about Bible interpretation. Remember what is and isn't essential, which brings me to our passage, the inaugural vision. I want to look at three things in this passage, four, because I've smushed two of them together. They are the encounter, how it starts with John, the visuals, what John sees, and then the exhortation explanation, what John is told. So let's look at the encounter, how it starts. When I first read this again in preparation, I was struck by this interaction, not so much by what was said, at first at least, but what physically happens in the vision. John says in verse 9 where he was. He was on the island of Patmos. It's uncertain as to exactly why he was there. It could have been a self-imposed exile. It could have been an exile done by uh, Roman authority. But he had been on Patmos. In verse 10, it says what state he was in. He was in the Spirit. It also says what day? On the Lord's Day. Then he says that he heard a voice behind him. He turns around, sees all the stuff we'll go through, we'll get to, and then realizes that this figure is God. He falls down as though dead. Then this figure, this God, whom John calls the Son of Man, puts his right hand on John's shoulder and tells him to fear not. By the way, this Son of Man is Jesus. It doesn't say that, but it's Jesus. (laughs) It's Jesus. There is a wonderful mix of authority and intimacy in this passage. John immediately sees and senses great power and authority. And as a result, he falls on the ground. But then there is intimacy in the approach. Being behind John. That's interesting. And then reaching down and touching John's shoulder with his right hand. There's intimacy here. Authority. Trumpet voice. Turns around. Boom! On the ground. He touches his shoulder. I was struck by the behind thing. Why did Jesus go uh, go to be behind him? Why, why did he speak to him from behind? I don't think there is a profound answer here, except for the level of intimacy. There are a few times there are a few times in the scriptures that humans have had face to face contact with God. Technically face-to-face. Let me put that in quotes. Face-to-face contact. And most of the time, it's not this intimate. 
Many times God speaks to prophets without being physically present to them. Other times he sends a messenger like the angel Gabriel. Thinking about this made me have to look up some of the other times God approached someone physically or in physical manifestation. I think it's called a theophany. Is that right? Um, there is, and let me go through some of these, and then I want to focus on two in particular that came to mind when I read this passage. In Genesis 18, God appears to Abram. There are three figures that come. Two of them are angels, but the one in the middle seems to be God. This one's kind of an intimate interaction. The Lord approaches Abram. Abram has a calf prepared. He gets cakes. He brings uh, milk, and he fe- there's a meal that goes on under a tree with God and his two angels, and there's an interaction. Kind of interesting. Exodus 3, the burning bush. There's a change here, it seems. Uh, Moses approaches the burning bush. There's some figure in the burning... It seems like there's a figure, kind of, burning bush. And the figure says, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. So there's something going on here. He didn't, God didn't do that with Abram and the meal. But he does that with Moses. Exodus 24. Moses and Israel's elders have an interesting encounter with God when they go up on the mountain. Moses goes closer, but the elders stay further away. But they have a meal. It's almost like they have this meal. And they're on, you have one of these rich uh, mansions where they have the long table. You know, and my wife is on one side and the husband's on the other. It's almost like that's the kind of meal they had. God was on one side and all the elders were on the other. It was a long distance, but they had a meal together. So there was kind of distance and intimacy going on. Exodus 33, very famous passage. Moses is so inspired by his interaction with God that he wants to see God. And he asks, can I see you? I want to see you. And God says, you can see my back. You can see my glory. So that's an interesting one. Judges 6, Gideon and the angel of the Lord over under the terebinth tree. Look up terebinth tree. That's a really fascinating looking tree. Odd. Artists would love it. But an angel sits under the terebinth tree waiting for Gideon. Gideon is threshing wheat and this is God and he starts talking to Gideon and basically commissions Gideon to be the leader that he wants him to be. Physical manifestation. Judges 13, God appears to the parents of Samson several times. He does to the wife or the mother of Samson and then to the husband, instructing them about you're going to have this son and you need to do this this way with him. And the father's like, now make sure I got the instructions right. (laughs) That kind of thing. But two in particular I was reminded of when I read this passage uh, in Revelation 1 are Genesis 32 where Jacob wrestles with God and it says this. In Genesis 32. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, this is the figure, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the figure said, Your name is no longer be, will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you have asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, calling, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. What an intimate interaction. In this passage, God physically wrestles with Jacob. 
intimate and familial. It's almost like two brothers testing each other's strength. You know, older brother, younger brother. It's like, let's wrestle, throwing each other around the way maybe a dad will wrestle with a son. So it, it, it communicates that intimacy, and I feel like there's a little bit of that here in Revelation 1. There's a little bit of that in the intimacy. The other passage I thought of was in Isaiah, when his encounter with God in his vision in Isaiah 6. In verse 1 through 6, in chapter 6, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings, with two other two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and the other two flew with he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Uh, Brett referenced this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having a hand, on his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your son atoned for. Atoned for. A very different encounter with God here. Isaiah is not wrestling with a brother. He has come into the presence of a king. And not just any king. The king of kings. The king of the universe. And it impacts him in a very different way than Jacob's wrestling match. It's interesting that the image that came to my mind when I read how the Son of Man, or Jesus, reached down and touched John's shoulder, the image of the cherubim taking the tongue and touching Isaiah's mouth came to my mind. Two acts of God doing something to help a person that serves him be in his presence. With Isaiah, he wasn't laying on the ground, but he, t- he touched the lips with the coal. God didn't touch him himself. Fast forward to Revelation 1. John is touched by God on the shoulder. Fear not. Wow. How intimate. These same two characteristics, kingly and brotherly, I see here are in John's encounter with Jesus the Christ, the Son of Man, both intimate and authoritative. The intimacy is seen first in Jesus' approach to John. He speaks to John from behind. He does not invade John's eyes in a sensorial deluge. John has to turn around and to see who spoke to him. He also see, you also see the intimacy and familiarity in the way Jesus encourages John after he falls to the ground. He places his right hand on John's shoulder. Jesus doesn't stand distant and command John to get up. He approaches and touches him, not to wrestle, but to assure. This is the Jesus who touched lepers, who defended tax collectors and prostitutes. He touched John. But we do see the authority of Jesus and how he is seen by John immediately. So we see the intimacy, the brotherliness, the familial, the familiar in the approach and the touch. But we see the authority of Jesus and how he is seen by John immediately and by how John responds to what he sees. He sees Jesus in his transfigurational form and falls on the ground as though dead. Falling down dead doesn't sound like a controlled descent to me. You ever seen an old Jerry Lewis routine? He would sometimes just fall on the ground in the middle of his comedic routine. Usually when a joke didn't fly, you'd, you'd look it up. You'd just sit there and he's telling a joke and if the audience didn't laugh, he just fell to the ground. The audience laughed because they laughed the guy just fell to the ground. His falls were not gentle. 
That's the idea I get here. John falls to the ground because the being he faces is the God of the universe, the King of Kings, the King of the universe. This is the Jesus of the Transfiguration. This is the Jesus of John 18, where when the religious leaders, do you know about this scene? John 18, when the religious leaders came to arrest Jesus after he was betrayed, they fell back and to the ground after they asked the question, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am. Boom, down. Do you guys know about that? Why? Jesus wanted to make sure that they knew who you're taking into custody. I could change this in a moment. Just like I said, I am, and you fell to the ground, I could turn it like that. This was the king. You're taking the king into custody. How do you see Jesus? How should we see Jesus? Do we see him as the one with all authority? The one high and lifted up? The one whose baptism caused the heavens to open and a dove to come down to him and a voice from heaven stating pleasure? Do we see him as the gracious rabbi who ignored the accusations of the religiously devout toward the woman caught in adultery and declares that neither does he condemn her? This combination makes me think of the character of Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings, as portrayed in the books in this case, not the movies. Towards the end, near the final battle, Right after the men of Gondor and Rohan defeated Sauron's armies in front of Minas Tirith, there was a time of planning and assessing the next step. In that time, the book states that Aragorn set up a tent, the king's tent, in front of the city of Minas Tirith to plan with his leaders. But he did not go into the city. He didn't go in because he knew that he, that would mean he would be seen as taking the crown of authority as king before the job was done in defeating his enemies. He had every right to do that. He could have gone in and taken the throne right then. So he did not enter. It was not time. He had to finally defeat Sauron, the evil one. However, there was a great need while this was going on. I respect, you respect Aragorn's authority and wisdom to not go claim the crown right now. But there was a great need inside the city and at the houses of healing. The hospital of sorts. There were many wounded, common and noble, that needed care, and only the true king could heal them miraculously. This miraculous care was one of the signs of the true king of Middle Earth, and Aragorn was this person. So Aragorn did enter the city, but only to go to the houses of healing and heal the wounded and the near death. But he would leave the city after that and each day until he then gathered his army, went before the gates of Mordor, and defeated Sauron. Then he came back and he took the throne. What an interesting example of authority and intimacy. It sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Do you see Jesus as both king and brother? If you only see him as brother, you might begin to take him for granted. Kind of become too familiar. He's not only a beer buddy. If you only see him as king, you might become too distant and aloof and lose the warmth of family. He's not only a principal or president or boss. He is your brother. What are ways that you treat him as king? How do you address him in your prayers? How do you describe him to others? I recently decided to start changing the way I come to address and come to church to up it a a bit in tone. Over the years, I've collected cufflinks through thrift store purchases of my wife, 
and deals online and also purchased cufflink shirts. And I decided I was going to go ahead and wear those every Sunday or try to. Not only do I like to look nicer from time to time, but I also like the way it, to extend honor and respect to the God I worship on Sundays. I don't share this to generate any guilt toward you about how you dress on Sabbath. You can do whatever you wish. Jesus touched the lepers, who were probably not in suits. I merely share it as an example of how you may act to exhibit the two realities of your own life with Jesus. He is your brother. He is your king. How does that exhibit itself in your life? Second, the visuals. What does John see? The second thing I wanted to look at is uh, what the Apostle John sees in the vision when he turns around and sees the source of the mighty voice. I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining at full strength. What does John see? Well, he sees seven lampstands. They were probably like oil lamps. Then standing in the middle of the lampstands is someone John says is like a son of man. There was only one son of man John knew about, and that was the one who called himself the son of man when he was on earth, and that was Jesus. John goes on then to describe what the son of man was wearing and what he looked like and what he sounded like. He wore a long robe. He had a gold sash. His hair was white as wool and snow. His eyes were fire. His feet shined like burnished bronze. His voice sounded like the roaring of rushing waters. Then John describes three other things. The Son of Man is holding seven stars in his right hand. He sees a two-edged sword coming out of the Son of Man's mouth. And his face shined as bright as a full sun, like the sun in high summer on a cloudless day. This is a fascinating description. If we knew nothing about the Bible and these types of descriptions and we met this son of man on the street, I don't think we would forget the experience. And we might have a hard time trying to fully describe it when we saw what we saw and and we would probably talk about it quite often for the rest of our lives. Imagine encountering this kind of thing on on the street and you knew nothing about the other world. It'd be memorable. And we'd be like, did you you see the stars? Uh, Wait, his feet seem to be shining. Almost like metal, right? Some of these characteristics are, are simpler to address than others. The lampstands were probably, probably similar to the menorah lampstands in the temple. I'll talk, talk more about that in the next point, as I will with the star, about the stars in the right hand. But that's kind of cool. The long robe and sash denote a high office. If you had a long robe in those days, it says in, in Sarah's tr- uh, translation, it went to the feet. If you had a long robe in those days... And you, and you could afford that extra material, it means that you had either money or you were somebody of high office. Long robes meant wealth and status, and a gold sash, Liberace, there you go. A gold sash, again, office. You know, you think of generals, they, they put on all their stars and bars, and they have their sashes. Okay, that's this kind of thing authority, power. The physical descriptions are wild, and I think kind of hard to say anything more than what it says here. The hair is interesting. 
This being, this being Jesus, this being was Jesus. The last time John saw his rabbi Jesus, he did not have white hair. <laughs> he probably had very dark hair. So why white hair? Well, Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Proverbs 20.29 20, says, The glory of a young man is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair or white hair. Gray hair, or in this case white hair, was a sign of great wisdom. It was obviously associated with the aged, as it is here, as it should be more here. Is it an interesting that COVID had more of an impact on the gray-haired people of our world and our country than the younger? Hmm. Anyway, so, but here, the Son of Man sports it because he is wisdom of wisdom. He is righteousness of righteousness. So the white hair is kind of a sign. Yes, I am the source of all the wisdom of the gray hair people, the white hair people in the world. He is the source of that wisdom. Eyes of fire could be some sort of sign of power, a visible expression of God being all seen, but that's just speculation. His eyes were fire. could have something to do with judgment and with looking and seeing clearly, like burns through, when Jesus burns through anything, any facade, and gets right to the heart of matters, perhaps. Now, the burnished bronze feet is another one that I've, I'll have to leave in the not sure but cool category. The word used here in the original language is a wild combination of a word used to describe copper, brass, or bronze, and the word used for frankincense. Yes. So they think it had something to do with like maybe amber colored, which is why the brass and bronze, you see that they're kind of goldy, you know, rust gold. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting trying to figure out in Greek or Aramaic at the time, how do I describe his shining feet? Okay, burnished bronze, like in a furnace. But then he goes on to Jesus' voice being like many waters. Now, that doesn't mean that John heard roaring or rushing water when Jesus spoke, necessarily. It probably means that the force of the voice was like the force of the sound roaring of roaring and rushing waters. I used to work at the beach in the summers when I was in high school. And to hear, uh, to be on the ocean on a stormy and windy days were a, was a powerful experience. You not only heard the water, but when it crashed, you felt it on your body even some distance from the beach. Perhaps that's what John is getting at here. After all, the voice that spoke to him was the same voice that spoke and created the sun, moon, stars, and all existence. That's a powerful voice. You would think it would have quite an impact on us. These last three descriptions are interesting. I'll talk about the stars on the right hand in the last point. John saw coming out of Jesus' mouth a two-edged sword. Now, I don't know how you see sound, and, and, and I was reading about this in some of the commentaries, but that seems to be what is described here. There are many paintings over the ages where this has been depicted, literally. Google paintings of two-edged sword out of Jesus' mouth. Google it, and you'll find some wild images. The writer of Hebrews wrote of the Word of God as this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
In Acts 2, after Peter's powerful sermon, it says that in verse 37, Now when they, the ones who heard his sermon, Peter's sermon, heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostle, Brothers, what shall we do? Perhaps John was describing something similar. The words from Jesus' mouth were words of weight and severity. The word of God can cut to the very heart of things. Perhaps this was in combination with the fiery eyes. Fire eyes can burn through the facade and get right to the heart, as the voice can cut right to the heart as well. Of course it would. He's God. He sees us exactly as we are, not as we wish him to see us. Say The only thing I have to ask, and we'll have to ask Jesus when we see him about this, um, because I'm not sure. What was that? John, we could ask John, what, what did you see? Was it, was it an actual sword? If you look at the paintings, they were actual swords. There's some paintings that have like a lily coming out of, I have to look into that. They have a sword on one side and a lily on the other. Anyway, so what we can we learn from this stuff? I think this passage is a great starter passage for us as we embark on our path through the book of Revelation. There are going to be phrases, passages, words, images that we will be able to grasp rather quickly and accurately, like long robes and gold sashes and white hair. Then there are things that we will read like two-edged swords from mouths and copper bronze, brass, frankincense feet. <laughs> Just because we don't understand something doesn't mean it isn't true. John and many before him were seeing visions of places and beings that lived in another dimension. Some of that is graspable. Some of it is beyond fantastical. All of it is true and sure because it was all created by God. Let me read some verses to remind ourselves of this reality. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its base, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the suns, I've read that before, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus has his own mind and his own imagination. Coming to an understanding of that is not, um, is not always... Coming to an understanding of God's mind will not necessarily be easy. It's God's mind. But it's a good place to start by knowing him more. My final point. Explanation, exhortation and explanation, what God, or what John has told. There are two sub-points here about uh, what is clear from this encounter. One is John is told to write down what he sees. And two, Jesus explains two of the items that John sees in the vision. John is told by the Son of Man to write down what he sees, what he has seen, what he sees, and the things that will be. I don't want to say too much here, as it's pretty straightforward. John is to write down everything he's seen or will see. 
But what brought this to my what brought this uh, what this brought to my mind was the idea and the importance of revelation to being a Christian. I'm not talking about the importance of the book of Revelation. It is no greater or lesser than any of the other books of the Bible. What I am talking about is the concept of what revelation is, the revealing and information of ideas and truth to the world. Revelation is an invasion of information needed to know what is true and what is false. We would not be able to know what God is or who God is, the true God, and what his actions are and how, towards the world and how to make and mend it if it were not for revelation. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1 about as uh, much as any human anywhere without revelation can understand. So if we didn't have this book, this is what, as much as we would understand according to Paul in Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There's enough information in ourselves and in this world that we can know there is a transcendent personal God. But which God is what Revelation reveals to us? Again, not only the book of Revelation, Revelation as an, uh, an exercise, an act. For anyone who doesn't believe in unseen things or unseen realms or things, the idea of revelation is lunacy and the stuff of children's tales. But you have to have a lot of faith to believe that things you don't see aren't real, as I talked about earlier in this sermon. Jesus exhorting John to write things down is revelation at work. We have an earthling named John who was taken in a vision to another realm and shown things. He was returned to earth and testified to what he saw in this book, and he called it Revelation. This is, not a, this is not a new thing for God. He has done this for millennia through many other such earthlings so that we may know him. And we have the added benefit that he came to our earth himself, which is another thing just John testified to before John even started the book of Revelation. See verse 9 for confirmation. Now, as far as, that was exhortation. Now, explanation. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, it says this. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the, knowledge, uh, the, secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak of them in, to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. God has a way of speaking to us uh, that may, in ways that may not make sense, and at the time make perfect sense. Sometimes they won't make sense, sometimes they'll make perfect sense. I am not equating the imagery of relation as a whole and in this particular chapter to a parable. But I am saying that God is, uh, say that God is not new to obscure communication for a reason. Obscuring things is not new to God. He, Jesus was doing it with the parables and there was a purpose behind it. What made me think of this is when I read this part of the vision was that Jesus chose to reveal two things. 
or as clear as he wished, to John about what John saw. Jesus only said two things meant to something. He didn't talk about why his hair was white. He didn't talk about why his feet were burnished bronze. He didn't talk about the gold sash. Why not? He didn't talk about why his voice sounded like roaring waters. He said, there are these two things mean this. I can imagine when John first turned around and saw the scene with the Son of Man in the midst, he probably thought in his heart, what do the lampstands and stars mean? Jesus was gracious enough to answer that question. The lampstands were the seven churches in Asia Minor, and the stars were the angels of the seven churches. The lampstands might have looked like the menorah lamps that stood in the temple. The whole setting of the scene itself, of the vision, where John finds himself, was probably to be seen as a temple. The menorah lampstand was in the holy place in the earthly temple, and at one time there might have been as many as ten in the holy place during the time of Solomon. These stands were the only source of light in the windowless temple. Did you know that? And they were to be kept lit the whole time. Jesus said in Matthew, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says in John 3, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be, should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Perhaps we, the church, are to be the light of the world, not to be hidden, knowing some will be repelled and some drawn. The stars were angels. <coughs> there is debate as to whether these were supposed to be guardian angels of various church of the various churches, or were they real like real life leaders in the churches, like bishops or elders. I tend to think that these were actual angels who were given some authority over a church. Now, this is not new to God given authority to heavenly beings over a group of people. There are small g gods that exist that God created and interacts with and seeks their counsels. It is in the Bible. In ancient times, the stars in space or in the heavens were not far away giant gas balls hanging out in space. In the times of the Egyptians, in the times of the Romans, times before them, those stars were not, oh, that's a giant gas ball just burning millions and millions and millions of miles away. No, in ancient times, each star was a heavenly being. The star was a physical manifestation of an unseen being. Now, a question arises as to why there are only seven churches talked about here that have lampstands representing them and only seven angels assigned to seven churches. Weren't there more churches? Well, yes. There was a church in Jerusalem, there was one in Antioch. There were churches in Greece and even in Rome and might even have been as far away as churches in Spain by the time John was writing this book in the late 90s, first century. So why just this seven? Part answer, I don't know. <laughs> but I do know that these seven churches were on a communication post route in Asia Minor of the Roman Empire. It could be that God is focusing in on just these seven to represent all the churches that were then in, there in existence. Think about it. Maybe God didn't want to communicate to all the churches in the Roman Empire because it would have been an incredibly long letter <laughs> and a lot of negativity. 
<laughs> and you, uh, church in Tuscany, um, I have this against you. And you, church in Crete, gosh, Cretans, there's a reason you're called Cretans. I mean, I could just imagine the number of letters that Jesus would have written. So, perhaps uh, communicating to just these seven was enough to address all the issues of any average church of the time. What they might be wrestling with. Think about it. You've lost your first love. You're lukewarm. These were all concepts that we think about even today. But we can ask Jesus when we see him. One thing we should take solace in about what God reveals and conceals is that the good, loving, and righteous, just God, who is the source of all things, is the source of these things. Clear and unclear. The great and humble Jesus is our king and brother. He is both understandable and beyond understanding. Understandable enough for us to live in a vital relationship with him, beyond understanding because of how much bigger he is and greater he is than us. And he does not leave us without information. He does not leave the lines between us and him empty. He is gracious enough to tell us what he means at times and wise enough to withhold stuff from us. Do you know this God? Elihu, a wise friend of Job in the book of Job, said this to him in, in chapter 36, these words. Behold, God is exalted in his power, who is, a teacher, who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for God his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. And later, Job, in answer to God's deluge of information about God's creation, says this to God. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Let us all approach not only Revelation, this book, Revelation, but all of God's revelation in similar manner. He is ours and you are his. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you are our God and we acknowledge you know all things. But we also know that we can't know all things because <laughs> only one of those beings can exist and that is you. So we ask that you grant us um, wisdom, the wisdom that is perhaps the source of the white hair that you had in your encounter with John. That you, by your authority, exhibited in your robe and your sash and your fire eyes, would grant us this wisdom. That we would be in connection to the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in this church. That we would see clearly the things that you want us to change. And that uh, we might perhaps be that lampstand where we would be a light set on a, like the city set on a hill that would be set up high so that people could see it and people would be drawn to it. Will you continue to do that, Lord? Do that through us? We ask that. And we know that the authority of the Son of Man, the one whose voice sounded like a trumpet and the roar of many waters is our, our God, our brother and our king. And we're so grateful for that. Thank you. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.